Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This is a Lip Media Podcast. I just like love hearing interviews with people with really different politics to me who are smart. Yeah, yeah, like it's like my dream, for example, has always been to have like a really smart conservative on the the podcast. I think would be really great. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. the 9th of August 2019. I'm Benjamin Riley, And I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme and this week we're talking about free speech. We're recording this a week early because I am about to fly to Phuket in Thailand tomorrow to sit on a beach for a week and read I'm books. I'm so jealous. Oh, I'm sounds just... lovely extremely extremely looking forward to it it's a particularly it's a much needed holiday particularly because at the moment in canberra it's cold and it's windy and it's rainy <laughs> and it's like four degrees and there's potential it's going to snow today and even though i've like only like a few weeks ago got back from like european summer i could just go back to the beach oh that's right you've had heaps of holidays recently well they oh, weren't well, really holidays oh, well, tri- they were trips trips, trips. Yeah, yeah yeah but I could I could do, just go and sit by a beach again for a little while would be quite lovely. Uh, and I'm just like looking forward to the like being in a place where it's like explicitly about chilling out. Like we're staying in a resort which is, you know, really cheap because it's in Thailand and like I'm just just having like a trash holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no pressure to go and do tourist things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to eat really nice food, drink cocktails at the swim up bar. And and read books. That sounds lovely. While you freeze your ass off in, in Canberra. 
Oh, thanks for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Writing my PhD and teaching. That's what I'm doing. How far through your PhD are you? Oh gosh, that question. Oh, sorry. Um, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I, I just meant like it's literally, fine. like like time wise. So I've been doing it for about two and a half years. Oh really? God, it feels like it has not been that long. It's been that long. Um, it'll be like like realistically, I'm looking at four years. That's pretty standard, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, which is which is hilarious because they cut off the scholarships at three and a half years, but nobody finishes it. But in that time, it's one of those ways that they make people work for free. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's a. I don't know the whole. As someone who is recently in postgraduate study, I'm finding the whole thing extremely, extremely weird. Yeah, I still love it though. I still love I it. I know, which I don't entirely understand. I like. I I wonder. And this is a, <laughs> probably a lot. We're going of off on tangents. I know, totally. I I I'd be curious. Like, I wonder, like, how much of your experience is down to your department and, like, the people you work with? I think it would be a lot, because I have a very good department. I really Yeah, totally, because I feel like universities are fucked, right? Like, they're just such kind of awful spaces in so many ways, so I wonder... Yeah, anyway, I don't know, it's a different conversation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's do the podcast. speech has been in the news a lot lately from the sacking of rugby player Israel Folau over homophobic social media posts to campaigns to deny visas to far-right activists to the news just this week that HN, the notorious forum associated with alt-right violence, has been effectively shut down. Preparing for this episode, I went back through our archives, sure that we must have done a free speech episode at some point and I'd just forgotten about it, which has ha literally happened before on other topics. And I was surprised to find out we never have, despite it being an idea that informs both Simon's politics and my own. So rather than just looking at an individual issue here, we're going to try and dig into some of the ideas underlying free speech discussions, particularly as they can relate to queer issues. So there's, we were kind of chatting about this before we started recording and it's kind of a scary topic because it, it's, it's so big and so complicated. But Simon, as a starting point... I mean, how would you even define free speech and, and do you think that it's a useful idea? Yeah, this is such a big question, uh, but it's an important one because I think it's one that we need to be discussing, particularly in the context of the sort of cases we just spoke about. We touched on the, the Falau case, the HN case, uh, as well as the another one that's happened, which wasn't we haven't mentioned, which was this high court decision around the, the right of APS members of the public service to, uh, to criticise the government on social media. Totally, even anonymously. Even anonymously, you know, someone got fired for that and that has been upheld. There's a lot of stuff that sort of comes around in these cases. And if you think about the Falau case, which is one that I've been talking about um, incessantly and getting sick of myself, there's a lot of sort of pushback of this. Oh, free speech doesn't mean, you know, that you've got a lack of consequences associated with this. And I agree with that to an extent that, you know, that, that free speech doesn't have a lack of consequences associated with it. Sometimes there are consequences for what you say, and that is okay. I think that, the, so I think that there is some boundaries about what we mean by free speech. It doesn't mean that you get to say whatever you want. and that's Well, honestly, you know, honestly, I feel like free speech is never really defined in these discussions. It's, it's evoked constantly, but I feel like all of these examples and all of the examples you just mentioned point to... Real specificities, I think, that are not really captured by just invoking free speech, either to critique it or to uh, say that we should have it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And, uh, and I think the lack of definition influences how it's spoken about. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that I hate about the term free speech is how it has been captured 
by a particular type of politics that talks about it when it's valuable to them, but not to other people. And what I'm saying here is that, you know, the, the type of poli- people who are really concerned about Israel Falau's free speech, but are not that concerned about the free speech of the woman from the APS who got fired, um, because it's free speech. It's, it's, a, it's a term that's used sort of within a sort of cultural war kind of a process that it's like, we want the freedom to say what we want to say, but not necessarily what other people want to say. And I think the left does that as well. We want freedom to, you know, for the for the woman in the APS, but not freedom for Israel for for Lau to say what he wants to say. Uh, when I think actually both of those cases are kind of linked in many ways. But going back to the original question, then, so what do we mean by it? I, I can't. I don't think I can give a definition. Um, I think that there are a few things that I think are really important. Um, I think the first is some form of freedom for, of political expression uh, without the government in particular having any penalties for that. And I would argue also uh, corporations to an extent, depending on in which uh, instance you do it. But I would say, you know, corporations shouldn't be regulating what we say outside of our work, outside of those working hours. Do you, do you mean for their employees? Yeah, for their employees. So I think the biggest issue I've had with a lot of these cases is that the encroaching of the of of corporations regulating what we say, particularly outside of the workplace. So if you know if you're the spokesperson for blah blah, and you say that you know say awful things, I can understand why that would be part of your job description. Uh, but increasingly, what's happening is that companies have social media policies. Those policies are not just for when you're in you know in working hours, but also account for when you're outside of working hours. And I have a major problem with that, and I think that is an encroachment on freedom of speech and freedom of political but expression. Like, but is it like I feel? I don't know. To me, that's not a... Like, to me, free speech is... The employment stuff is a really interesting one, and I think the high court decision is is an interesting one because... So so maybe we should just say a little bit more about what happened. So a few years ago, uh, a public servant, uh, whose name I can't remember, was fired from her job after it was revealed that an anonymous Twitter account that she had in which she was frequently critiquing the government's uh, immigration policies primarily. but And she worked for the Department of Immigration. And she worked for the Department of Immigration. It, it was found out. She was fired. She appealed it. It went to the High Court, and the High Court upheld it in this very kind of weird judgment that came out this week that basically said that she had brought the reputation of the government into disrepute and that anyone operating on social media should assume that if they're saying anything bad about the government, it could be linked to them, even if that's completely outside of their control at some point. Which is very... It's a much broader um, reading of uh, the right for public servants to engage in political debate than it ever has been, or the, sort of the yeah, lack of their rights. Yeah, so, It's really extreme. So when I... When I worked for the public service, which was in 2011, it was only six months, I was, the, the, the basic rules were then, and this was the same for Greg Jericho, who was Grog Scammett, who was a, um, a, a blogger, who is now a journalist, who also worked for the public service and was blogging anonymously at this point in time. And it was kind of around the same time that I worked for the public service. And the basic rules, and he's said this as well, the rules at that point in time was, it is okay to, uh, you're allowed to critique the government, um, but you just can't do it within your policy area. So you can't be, so if you work... I worked for the Department of Transport. I was sort of, I avoided transport issues. And that was kind of so that, you know, it, that didn't look like it was compromising your particular work, but I could critique the government on immigration. And the, the I think the issue with this case is that it broadens that to critiquing the government full stop uh, or basically to be engaged with political discourse. Totally, which, which is weird. I mean, it's such a kind of narrow definition of what, politics is essentially it's like mm. how you can't really live in the world without engaging with political discourse purely yeah, by yeah and you know like you can imagine that being extended quite clearly to like 
being gay, for example, could be seen as a political act in criticism, like, you know, pre-marriage equality or pre-gay marriage, that, like, even being openly gay could be seen as critiquing the government's policies. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, it's interesting being in Canberra because half of my friends or more are public servants. And I know people who are now, have made the decision to shut down Twitter accounts, for example, because they just, they just fear for their jobs. Totally, fair enough. Um, and not just because of current potential, you know, tweeting, but because of past stuff as well. Oh, I feel like I know lots of people now who routinely, who like auto-delete tweets older than like a week or something. And I yeah, honestly, yeah. I, th- I think that that's smart. I'm thinking about setting it up for my own account because it's just like, you know, all that they can do is be used against you. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, that's, I think that's a different different discussion that I'd like to have but one it, day. But um, but, but, it, but but it kind of. But I feel like all this stuff is related, and and I say that because. The the High Court decision this that that was published this week, I I think that's a really good example of where it's being framed around free speech. But I think free speech is not a useful framework to talk about it at all because it's so it's too abstract. Like for me, the case is about the it's about workplace rights basically, mm. like the extent to which an employer can control the lives of their employees. And I think engaging with it in terms of free speech is a total furphy, like really just kind of moves away from that core issue of workplace relations. Um, I think that that's a really interesting point. And it's one that I can, I feel sympathy for definitely. And I think that I would argue that there's a similarity. It's where the similarity exists between that case and the Israel Folau case. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, because I, I think that that is a workplace rights case. And it's a question of when does... An employee in a high-profile position, in his instance, have the right. When is it, when's he at work and when's he not at work? Um, I think it's more clear during the APS in the APS example. But I think for someone like that, it's super interesting about the argument has been well, he's at, he's, he's always an ambassador for the for the Rugby Australia. Um, but my sort of position is well, that seems to be an unfair imposition to put on someone that they are always at work and that we shouldn't and that is something that's being increasingly expected of of everybody that we're always at work and therefore we're always representing the organization and i think that is a workplace rights issue about the encroachment of work into our you know we sort of used to say eight hours work eight hours rest eight hours sleep uh, sorry eight hours work eight hours play eight hours sleep um but that now it's sort of like 24 hours work uh, and that is a workplace rights issue, not necessarily a free speech issue. So why do you think it's being framed as a free speech issue? Uh, well, I think that, I mean, I think this goes back to one of the issues with free speech as a term, or at least about the way it's used, is that it's used by a particular segment of politicians or, or political actors, sort of libertarian right-wing actors who like to invoke free speech when it's suitable to their to their issues, um, but then who like to who like to have a go at people for their their speech at other times so you can think of the people who are who are really upset about israel falau who were then more than happy to really gosh i've just gone blank on names on uh the woman who around the anzac day tweet oh what is what on earth is her name yeah i can't remember either completely blank but we've you know that but I i think that you know it plays out in this kind of way around a particular types of politics and a particular type of political sort of wing. Uh, and I think that that's a real problem. And I don't know where that comes from. Like, where 
that history lies. Um, maybe it lies in the fact that the left now has sort of abandoned free speech, so it sort of fits in the space of, of, of the right quite easily, and so they use it for when they want to. But uh, that is a problem, I think, that we're, of what happens when we think of free speech, that it's associated with this particular type of politics. But that's why I, I feel like this discussion, the fact that we've we've veered away from the the central idea of of free speech, is is kind of indicative of the problem with the term. Is that for, of of all the cases that we've talked about a little bit, and and the the list of examples that we mentioned in the opening, the only one really that for me says something interesting about free speech is the campaigns by people to deny visas to right-wing to far-right activists coming to Australia like for me that maybe touches on I don't know like why is that what out well because I feel like the other ones are too tied up in specific things like the the high court case and the Israel Folau cases are both to me more about like to what extent should an employer be able to control your life well full stop I guess Yep. Uh, particularly outside of work hours. The 8chan stuff, which we haven't talked about at all, to me that's like a question that's more about the extent to which a company that in this case was not a like a really kind of big, like a massive kind of... Like we're, like we're not talking about Facebook or Google or something here where they, where they do have this monopoly on discourse in a way that I think is relevant to free speech. They were just basically... Forced in, I can't remember the company's name. Cloudstore. Cloudstore, that's right. Sorry, Cloudflare. 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 Yeah, Cloudstore uh, is another tool I've been using the last week, so I keep getting those two mixed up. No, it's all good. They all, um, all sound blandly techy. Uh, yes. You know, it, it's a in case the cloud, of cloud. It's tech. It's wizardry. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. You know that, like that's an instance of a company having to make a decision about whether or not they want to be associated with a particular thing. Like, I don't think. I, I feel like it's. The fact that that's all been framed around free speech, and again, more in America, I think, in that case than here, is also kind of a furphy. Like it's, it's, like I don't know, is that about free speech? It's just this kind of yeah, one company kind of going. Like I feel like do you sort of have to demonstrate that there is a, a massive hegemonic power structure that is capable of controlling speech, and I think the only to to, to be able to kind of talk about things in terms of free speech, I think the only cases that really apply for that are like maybe really powerful cultural like cultural uh hegemonic forces the state and like massive corporations like i think it's relevant to talk about in the context of facebook and google or or yeah like microsoft or amazon or whatever those massive tech companies that are kind of like super states in a way and it's it's why i think my initial response when i was thinking about this question about what is free speech i think that the initial response is at a basic level, a a desire to see that the state is not engaged in the the regulation of particularly political speech. Um, I think that there are instances where the state is engaged in regulation of speech. So you know, the classic example that is always spoken about is that it's illegal to scream fire in a crowded theater, and there are safety concerns around those kinds of things. But sure, what's well, like it, incitement to to violence or, to violence, or like yeah. danger, I guess, and then yeah. def- defamation is the other one. But that, but that even that's kind of complicated. Yes, exactly. But beyond that, I, I have a real issue with any sort of regulation of speech of any form. Uh, of, of you know, and there's a, there's a few there's those kind of instances around safety and around those kinds of things around the incitement to violence. 
that I'm comfortable with. But, you know, the sort of political speech and uh, in particular, I think we've got to be very careful about the state regulating that. And I think that what I find really uncomfortable about the state uh, blocking visas for people coming into, for right-wing activists coming into the country, I mean, there's two two real things there. Is first of all, I don't want the state to be using that power to de- to define what is good and what is bad speech. I don't trust the state to be doing that in the first place. Yeah, sure. Let alone think they should have that power. Um, but secondly, I think that there's, you know, for us on the more progressive side of politics who are pushing for that kind of stuff, I think there's real potential for backlash in terms of that it actually, that it ends up being used for radical lefties as well. Um, and I think that people are not like smart when they're engaging in that strategy. But in the, in the, in the, in the first place, I think that the bigger issue here is that the state shouldn't have the power to be defining what is good and what is bad speech in those instances. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. nail salon and grocery store wait she's at the nail salon and the grocery store i'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store groceries through instacart delivered to my door i don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store But I think that the reason why, in some ways, you know, as we as we kind of talk through it, this issue also reveals some of the limits of talking about free speech because your the definition you gave earlier of the kind of accept, the yelling fire in a crowded Mm-mm. building and that like incitement to violence or or or, or I guess in free speech or speech that can ver- would very directly what am I trying to say speech that would very directly lead to harm of some kind we're living in a world now where everything is being talked about in terms of violence and harm and so it's really difficult i was was listening to a podcast i remember a a year or so ago where it's dan carlin who does hardcore history he has a politics podcast as well that he's sort of stopped doing really since trump because he doesn't really know what to say anymore which is fair enough he made the point that you know there's the old the old saying that probably is a quote from from some famous historical figure that I can't remember of, you know, my right to swing my fist ends where your face begins, which I think is a really kind of nice little pithy metaphor for summing up civil liberties. But like how, but that doesn't really apply in an age where we have like, well, no, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say that because I feel like it, it, it potentially does apply to speech. The problem is that, in the kind of globalized, highly interconnected world that we live in, like you know, your your head is to 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 extend the metaphor past the point where it makes sense. Perhaps your head is kind of limitless. You know, like the potential for harm has been framed in a way that makes it like anything potentially is harm now. Yeah, and yeah. so it kind of is hard to talk about freedom in those terms yeah i think that makes sense and i think that there's a particular type of politics that sees everything as harm 
in that way as well. Is it, you know, a particular... We've spoken about this a little bit in the... Well, not a little bit. We've probably spoken about this a lot in the podcast, uh, that there's a a politics around sort of victimhood in some ways or just a politics that frames everything through the lens of harm. And that sort of adds to this as well. And, and you know, so that... And, and, and the, the, the argument that... I think runs through a lot of these things is that speech, you know, let's, let's look at an example of, you know, homophobic speech, for example, that homophobic speech leads to harm either through the sort of emotional harm that it, that, you know, young people in particular get from that, or it creates, there's also this argument that homophobic speech incites other people to sort of commit bashings and to, and to do harm, even if it's not directly saying you should do this. Uh, and that that argument is quite strong now, I think, within a lot of politics. Um, totally. And, I, and, and I, don't, I, don't I don't think it's invalid either. Like I, like, I feel like it's not something that we should throw out, but I feel very uncomfortable with the idea that that is literally the same as yelling fire in a crowded theatre. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that that is where it gets muddy, very, very muddy around how we decide what is okay and what is not. And it's why it's the limitations to this notion of an overall free speech, I would argue, in that, you know, I think that when you talk about people, when you hear people who say, you know, we have an absolute right to free speech, like, I think that there is clear limitations to that, but it's like, we have to negotiate what those limitations are. But it's also like, but I feel like if you're making that claim, it's got to go hand in saying, hand in hand with, well, what is, what is speech, right? Like, mm. you know, what do you, what are you actually, what are you actually saying that you have a right to here? Yeah. And I don't, I think that that is not done a lot of the time. No. Well, what do you think speech is then? Uh, yeah, you, I don't... Are, you asked me the tough, tough, tough question of what is free speech. I'll ask you the question of what is speech. What is speech? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't see a particularly meaningful distinction between speech and other kinds of action. Yeah, I don't... Oh, no, I don't know. That's that's tricky. Maybe I don't want to say that. I, th- I think that it's definitely a... Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm I'm tying myself in knots here because I am uncomfortable with the idea of like, like in general, I'm a very like pro freedom guy, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> but, and, and that's another kind of interesting question that's maybe worth digging into, but I feel uncomfortable defending certain, defending speech as this like particularly protected category of thing because I don't really know what the difference is between that and like other sorts of action which which i which i feel like again points to the limitations of, of free speech as an idea I, I i keep thinking about you we you did an interview with with jared bartle a policy analyst that that was the the last episode that we published and i really loved the interview and there was a comment that he made towards the end of the interview that really resonated with me and i think goes to the heart of a lot of what we're talking about now which is he said that he's very uncomfortable with a politics that denies individuals the capacity to like think for themselves or mm. or that says that individuals capacity to like have free thought is constrained i can't remember exactly how he put it but it's something along those lines and he was talking about uh, I guess this this trend in queer politics and in left wing politics more broadly to talk about structures as so dominating politics. I mean, which which of course they do, but to the point that you can't 
really say that any individual has the capacity to act freely. And whilst I think that I agree with, like, on a on a very abstract philosophical level, I agree. I think, like, everyone's agency is constrained, but and everyone's kind of capacity to think is constrained and all that sort of thing. I feel like that's a kind of obvious point. Yep. But I, I share Jared's concerns that as soon as that becomes a part of your politics, like it's really difficult to kind of hold that idea in one hand and build a politics around it on the other. I think like it's super important to, to, to hold a, a person's capacity for agency at the core of a politics. And that's a kind of slightly more convoluted idea than just saying freedom is important. But, but to me, that, that's a really core... That's a really important idea. Well, this goes to, bait, to debates around the idea of false consciousness, right? That that there's that we're sort of, and I think it's this interesting thing we see in which there's this kind of notion of that people who hold views that are opposed to ours must sort of be driven by the Murdoch media, or must be driven by something that is some sort of big structure. And we are the kind of enlightened ones in that way. Yes. And I yeah. think it doesn't engage with the agency of that person in any way. That they're sort of some dupe and we're not. Uh, and, I, and and there's this question of how did we get out of being a, that person who's duped? Well, they're, they're the one who's been duped somehow. And I think that that's just, it's not a valuable place in which to start a conversation assuming that someone has no agency. Uh, whilst also like acknowledging that we're all constrained in particular kinds of ways and we're all shaped by social processes. But even if that's true, like we have to start somewhere and I think starting with the assumption that people have agency is valuable. Oh, I think it's I think it's critical. I think it is I think a politics that doesn't do that is ultimately I mean to to be a little dramatic and and this is going to sound like I'm invoking Godwin's law or whatever, but like is fascism. Like like that's kind of like assuming that other people can't think for themselves and need to be told what to do is the is the path to fascism. <laughs> <laughs> but so but so how does this then relate back to the initial question of speech in the sense of if we if we okay we we want to assume an agency of people what does that mean for uh, the right of those people to have speech of whatever or however we define that and and I guess the question is at which you know, the thing that I that I keep thinking about is the level of is, is the question of hate speech, which is something that keeps coming. That uh, whenever I talk about speech, is something that people always bring back to me. That you know, mm, we yeah, you know, this is spe- we have to regulate this speech because it's hate speech. So you know, it, and it just goes back to that question of harm. Um, at which level are we willing? To, what are we willing to accept, and what are we not willing to accept? Given the sort of notion of agency that we want to sort of bring into this debate. Well, I, f- I feel like that's that's an interesting point because it kind of goes to the question of. Okay, well, well, pe- the people's position against hate speech is that it, it is harmful, right, or it's damaging, yep. and so I guess the question for me is, in what way, right? Like, like, what is the kind of risk of hate speech? Yeah, I think that is. I, I think that that is one question. I think that's an important one. I think the other question I want to add is what. Are we what sort of level of harm are we willing to accept 
almost. Or mm. uh, or how do we fight? So there's, there's there's two ways we could frame it. Like what, what sort of are we willing to accept? Or more more realistically, how do we fight that harm? Or how do we deal with that potential harm? And what are the ways that we do so? And is, for example... You know, I think that there's an assumption that people have that if we, the only way to deal with hate speech is to ban it, to regulate against it. And I think that that is not necessarily, that's not the only way, that there's actually other ways we can fight against that sort of rhetoric and that we don't have to go to the state straight away for that to be the, you know, we can allow people to say those things, but also fight back in other ways. And so that's kind of where I come from as well. So there's that sort of what harm does it create, but also how much are we willing to accept or how much or how do we deal with that yeah, harm when, yeah. it, when it happens? Oh, totally. I feel like the, the question of actual political consequences and actual political goals has got to be at the heart of these discussions. And it, yeah. I feel like over the course of this conversation, I'm kind of like, you know what, actually, I, I, I'm sort of coming around to the idea that free speech is, is not maybe a particularly helpful framework partly because it's so like in in some ways it sort of like plays into the same paradigm that people who want to regulate speech in in really restrictive ways play into which is you know like like by being in opposition to that although it's you know weirdly kind of flipped around from how it would have been in the past we are still imagining a world in which the ability of the state to regulate or not regulate speech is the, the question here when perhaps, you know, we should be more focused on, well, what do we, what do we actually want? You know, like what, what are we, what are the consequences here and what are the best mechanisms for dealing with that? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I think that it sort of goes to some of the arguments, like to bring it back to a concrete case, it goes to the arguments and, and I bring it, I, I bring it back to this case because it's one that I've been, you know, engage with on Twitter a lot due to my own like mental anguish or my own, my own stupidity. <laughs> I don't know why you do um, this to yourself. Uh, but this case, you know, the Israel Falau case is a really good example of this for me, um, is that there's sort of such a push to regulate that speech because it's hate speech. And that's the response I always get, you know, that this speech is hate speech. But well, what is the, the, the real political outcomes of that? And the real political outcomes I see is the, the right for corporations to have to further encroach into our lives to regulate what we do outside of a workplace and so maybe that's where it's not actually as you know we spoke about this before it's not a speech issue it's a workplace relations issue but it's one that where we can think about the real political consequences that we have of this um, and the real political outcomes that we want to get and i don't think an outcome that allows corporations to encroach onto every people's onto people's lives is a, is a good outcome and sure. so what are therefore the alternative ways that we can deal with the rhetoric of israel Folau? Uh and what are the alternative ways we can do that there's there's probably lots of different things if we had the imagination to think about that about what we could do to to react to those things you know there's a whole bunch of stuff we could be doing about, you know, creative actions at events that he's at. There's a whole bunch of, you know, um, ways, you know, there's, there's stuff that people used to do and I always think back to the, um, a lot of the sort of anti, you know, far right, uh, uh, um, not far right, but anti like right wing religious stuff that happened in the 80s and 90s where, where people, there'd be conferences that would happen and people won't try to shut them down. They'd go and they would, you know, flood them with, you know, drag queens and with, with gl- glitter and all these sorts of things and, you know, have like not, not even protests, but, you know, sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. real well, positive they, I mean, stuff on the outside. They are. They have sort of slash but... protests, but yeah, not protests in the way that, it, you know, sometimes you think about the protest slash, you know, thing, you know, sort of parties outside to sort of yeah. like smother it. And and I think that that, 
we we don't we're not creative in that way. In well, many ways. I mean, to be to be fair, that that does still happen. I I went to uh, a, a few years back when I was still at the, a journalist at the Star Observer. I went and covered a uh, I can't remember what the group's called, but like a, a fundamentalist Christian group that were having their international event in Melbourne, and I went and, and wrote about it. It was fascinating, and and there was a big queer protest uh, slash party outside of that, and it was really fantastic. Yeah, that sounds great. But I th- I think my the way I read a lot of this stuff is that the first the first response is now to try and shut it down. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily the best outcome politically, nor uh, the the most creative way that we can deal with these sorts of things. Well, look, it's hard um, to it's hard to imagine that anyone on the you know left or liberal or whatever side of the Israel Folau issue could be happy with the outcome. I mean, he's on the front page of the newspaper. Like once a week, he's got these massive platforms now. He's being defended by all these right wing commentators. Like you know, mm. fucking think for five minutes and and uh, you know we haven't got a good outcome here. No, no, no. And 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 his and his speech, his hate speech, you know, what, uh, however you want to define it, has been spread a lot further because of the because of the response to it. You know, it's one of these very funny things that I see frequently. You know, and I think about this in real term politics is. People who have the argument that this that these sorts of things create real harm and that they you know cause this significant harm, but the moment someone tweets something negative, they retweet it and share it to all their followers. Totally, and, it's like, yeah. and so I find that very bizarre sort of form of politics around the need to spread something to fight against it. You know, well, I, I mean, I feel like I feel like not not to to invoke the same false consciousness argue, arguments that we were arguing against before, but I think that that points to the fact that. A coherent politics is not actually what's happening here. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think that maybe that's a good place to sort of come to some sort of conclusion around this sort of we need to be thinking about a coherent politics. Um, And I don't think a harm-based politics is necessarily that coherent. And I I don't think it's not coherent because uh, harm is so difficult to define and it becomes difficult when everything you're campaigning against is to stop harm. Uh, and it doesn't take into account so much of the other politics that exists in these sorts of discussions. Uh, and like, I think that these examples of free speech are, are really great examples of where this that politics becomes quite coherent. But at the same time, we can also argue that a free speech politics, one that's engaged in by the right, is also not very coherent. And that's and and you see that most clearly because it they they will fight to the death to defend Israel Folau whilst also doing nothing about this poor woman in the APS. And I think that that also highlights a lack of coherence around the notion of free speech itself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like not not to to. Uh say something counter to the nice little kappa that you that you've just said but i think that it's not so much that a harm-based politics isn't coherent i think that the way that it's being enacted is not actually consistent with its own values and not that i think that a coherent version of like in in that people are saying you know uh, uh, hate speech is bad but then they're also doing things that perpetuate hate speech yeah yeah like i i don't think the incoherence is the problem i think it's that well maybe it's part of the problem right like there's this mismatch between what people say that their goals are and what they're actually doing but not that i think that a consistent version of that politics would be actually a good thing i think it would be a bad thing but maybe at least it would reveal the problems with that way of thinking yeah that makes sense
Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you would like to support the podcast, the best way that you can do that is by, I mean, other than, you know, continuing to listen and continuing to tell people about it and all of that stuff, which we'll talk about a bit more in a minute, is to subscribe to our Patreon. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month, but if you subscribe up to $5 a month, then you get bonus episodes that we put out monthly. We think that there are some really good discussions there that we're not really having on the podcast, so so check that out. We're also trying to make it a bit more worth people's while by posting little bits of writing that Simon and I are doing, thoughts that we're having about things related to the podcast and the stuff we talk about here. So check that out. That's patreon.com slash queerspodcast. If you would otherwise like to get in touch or make a comment or give us some feedback or ask a question or whatever, there are a bunch of different ways you can do that. Yes, you can email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all the social medias, at Queers Podcast. And we also have our own personal social media. I'm on Twitter at Simon Copland. Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. And I'm on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can also find the podcast on our website, which is queerspodcast.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Where we're on all the major platforms. And if you do that review... Uh, give it, give us a, a nice review, ideally, and and a nice rating, and that'll help other people find it. Also, tell a friend. Uh, I think that word of mouth is how I hear about most of my podcasts these days. Uh, totally, and yeah. so, if you like our podcast and uh, you're enjoying the conversations we're having, please tell someone about it. Uh, they might like it as well. It's you know, it's a really lovely way to help us boost our numbers and and, and get more people into our little podcast community. Uh, and finally. We'd like to say a big thank you to Lip Media, our podcast network partners. Lip have been really, really helpful and excellent since we've joined up, and we really love being part of that network. And they have a new show uh, called Deviant Women, uh, which has just come out recently. So go and check out that as well. You can check out everything at lip.media on the web. Totally. I feel like just literally the name Deviant Women, if you're a fan of this podcast, is probably going to get you uh, interested in having listened to it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks.